This is your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number R2 with guest Courtney Webster. All links and resources you hear on this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash R2. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, Askigers, welcome to another special edition of the podcast. And if you listened last week, you know that I am doing a special 10 part series all about recovery, more specifically sobriety from alcohol. And last week was my very first episode in the 10 part series, which was a solo episode telling you my story and everything that happened there and a little bit about my recovery and things like that. And so today I bring you my first guest. And again, the numbers are a little bit different. They're not, you know, regular numbers. These are last week it was R1. And as I was recording the intro and I said R2, I really wanted to say R2D2, but no, this is episode R2. And again, I am just ecstatic to bring you today's guest because I have Courtney Webster and Courtney is not only someone who has over a decade of really strong recovery from alcohol, drugs, and an eating disorder, but she is one of my very, very closest, bestest friends. And Courtney and I met in coach training with the Coaches Training Institute in 2008. And it's kind of a funny story. We were both nursing mothers at the time. And I was struggling because we were both pumping. We brought breast pumps with us because it was like a weekend. There's five weekend events and we were at one of the weekends. And of course I was away from my infant and she, there was something went wrong with my breast pump and she helped me fix it. And, or I used some part of hers or something like that. And so we bonded over breast pumps and being away from our children. And, you know, of course we were fast friends after that, but more specifically to this episode in 2011, if you listened last week, you heard my story, but in 2011, when I got honest with myself and was thinking about trying sobriety or wondering, you know, if I really did have a problem, Courtney was the first person I called. I was so afraid to tell anyone I did not tell my husband. I didn't confide in any other friends, but she was the first person I knew I had to call. And I was even afraid to tell her that I was struggling, afraid that even she would judge me. And she absolutely did not. I thought that when I told her, you know, like in this like quiet, hushed voice, like, I think I might have a problem with drinking. I thought she was going to gasp and be like, oh my God, really? She didn't. It was very non-dramatic. She let me talk about it tell her what I was feeling and told me that if I wasn't 100% sure I had a problem with drinking, then maybe I could try to quit for 30 days and see what happened. And, And you'll hear us talk more about that whole concept in the interview. And when I went through it, it was very telling. And, you know, if you listen to the rest of the episode, we'll talk more about that. You know, I could read you her professional bio. I have it here, but I just, if you want to read her professional bio, she has lots of credentials and awards and accolades and certifications and all of those things. She does work with people who are both 
in recovery and who are not. So if you're looking for a life coach who is absolutely, she has coached me before. She is whip smart. She's highly, highly intuitive. She's able to, with love, cut through the bullshit and she gets these intuitive hits that are always spot on. And I always, I just, she's also a very soft place to land. That's how I describe Courtney. And I'm so excited for you to meet her. And I just want to add before we jump in, you will hear us talk about 12 step programs as a mode of recovery. Courtney is still involved with one over a decade into her own recovery. And my first few years into my own recovery, I participated in a 12 step program as well, but rest assured, if that is not for you, we will in future episodes, talk about other modes of recovery. So if 12 step is not for you, and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, please don't run away, stick around for other episodes, and we will talk about other ways of recovery. So without further ado, here is Courtney. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast, more specifically the recovery series. And this is the second podcast episode that I've done. You heard the first one last week, which was basically my story and my kind of when I came out to the interwebs in 2012, I think it was about recovery and getting sober. And I'm so excited for this one because one of my favorite people in the world in recovery and in life is here with me today. And everyone, please meet Courtney Webster. Hey, Court. Hey, Andrea. What a beautiful intro. Thank you. You're one of my favorite people too. Oh, well, I'm so glad that that came out that way because I was (laughs) totally unprepared for it. Well done. Well done. I always feel like I'm so, I don't think I've ever told my audience this, but I listen back to some of my podcast episodes and my mm-hmm. intros are so awkward. And then I listen to other people's and I'm like, they clearly scripted that out because it was yeah. like flawless. But yeah. I'm just over here just like, hey, everybody, <laughs> here's my friend. And that's why people love you. <laughs> oh, God. Sometimes I listen, it's just painful. I'm like cringing. I'm like, oh, I could have done that better. But I don't, I mean, I just usually wing it. And that's what we're going to do today. We're talking cool. about something really important though. Yeah. I love your recovery story. Oh, which one? The one where I drank NyQuil? <laughs> <laughs> and vanilla. And vanilla. And you're like, don't forget the shot of vanilla extract. <laughs> which made yeah. it taste better. No, I just love that you've been really open about it and really shared along the way. And I just, I think it's great. I think you've helped a lot of people. Thank you. And I felt like, you know, this was kind of a long time coming in that, you know, I talk about personal development and all things around. I mean, the list goes on and on of what we talk about on the regular scheduled podcast, but I've been wanting to do this, but I didn't know what it was going to look like. And I'm like, I just need to have amazing people on that can just have conversations about it. And that's what we're doing. Cool. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I want to just really start with your story. So when, and you know, you can start whenever, because I'm going to ask you a very loaded question. When did addiction start for you and what happened? Yeah. Well, it's funny you ask it because I feel like I didn't really realize, really realize that I was addicted until a couple of weeks before I quit. I thought you were going to say a couple of weeks ago. No, 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 no. <laughs> And I think that it started when I kind of look back at it, I kind of identified books as my first addiction, like they were my first escape. And I just used to, I felt awkward when I was little. I didn't, you know, my sister would run up the street and play with all the kids and was really social. And I just felt kind of awkward. I would just read. And so I would just go to the library and literally take out the maximum I was allowed to. So it was like 11 books and I went through all the young adult and then I was reading adult and I was just, I just would pour, I would just climb into books. That was my escape. 
And then, so I'll just kind of like fast forward through the different forms that my, you know, needing to escape and not having tools to deal with life, I guess. And so then it morphed at some point into an eating disorder. So I feel like that was, it was a very identifiable, like, oh yes, I'm bulimic. So when was that? Was that like in your teens or? Yeah, that was probably eighth grade. Oh, okay. Eighth grade, ninth grade. And then that lasted for a really long time. That actually lasted, you know, I was in and out of it. I actually went to therapy about it. So anyway, so it was super high achieving, right? So Mm -hmm. I still, everything looked good on the outside. And that was kind of a theme through all of it. All of my addictions were always very under the radar. You know, nobody knew that I was bulimic. And I had, you know, I achieved, did great in school and graduated, had a great job. I was in and out of the bulimia. And I never really, I can look back now and go, oh yeah, I'm allergic to alcohol because when I would drink, I would try and control it because I didn't want to get in trouble. So I still had that whole like eating disorder, like perfect, good little girl, like control, control. I never let myself get too crazy with it, but I was always very involved in what other people were drinking. Like I was on the students against driving drunk committee, you know, sad. Oh my God. I was like, I started it at my school. I did a movie, like a, what's it called? Like a short film? Yeah. It was a documentary about people who had like killed people. We went into a prison. I mean, I was like involved and I was always involved in like making sure people didn't drive and drink and, you know. Oh, you were, you were part of like the just say no era probably. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, maybe even before, but it was just, it was weird though. I was always involved in it, you know, instead of just like walking away, I was just like in it. So anyway, I guess I to kind of like fast forward to where addiction kind of brought me is when I stopped working and because I just kind of needed to take a break and I'd had all this great success and I left this job. And part of it was, I felt like I needed to be really coming to terms with whatever the eating disorder had been and what was underneath that. And really, you know, discovering myself because I'd been on a fast track all through. So there, high school, so there came college. a point, um, so there came a point when you knew that your eating disorder was not good for you and you needed to heal yourself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was working. I was like top. I was doing great, great work. I was like top salesperson. I had plaques on my wall, like, you know, classic overachieving, totally defined by outside validation. And it just stopped working. And so I got into therapy and as I kind of, and I went, I remember going into the therapist and saying, you know, I had my little silk suit on and I had my day timer and I sat there and I was like, so how long is this going to take? <laughs> and she said, well, you know, as classically, she was like, well, it's, you know, it takes, it basically, it takes what it takes. takes And I was like, well, yes, but typically in your experience, what would you, and I really wanted to like map it out on my calendar. Like, okay, I'm starting therapy here. It will end here and we will be done. And it wasn't, it kind of expanded. And I got more into like healing a bunch of stuff. And I ended up leaving that job, starting a new career. And while I was kind of in this limbo, I decided, first of all, I got put on antidepressants because I was suicidal because I was kind of going through a nervous breakdown. So let's just like paint the whole picture. I like left that job because I needed to take a break one to find myself. But I was also having a little bit of a nervous breakdown. So they said, you know what, if you're having suicidal thoughts, you really need to be on medication. So I took some medication and I was kind of freaked out about doing it because I thought, you know, there has been some addiction in some parts of my family and I don't want, and I just really identified taking any drug with addiction and I didn't want to do that. And I didn't really identify an eating disorder with addiction. It just, that was totally separate. So I started taking the antidepressant and within 10 days I had gotten some crystal meth from a friend 
because I just wanted to lose 10 pounds because I thought I could just trying to handle, like I thought if I could just lose 10 pounds, everything I could deal with everything else. Mm -hmm. So I kind of point to that, like, that's where I feel like it kind of took on a life of its own because that's pretty extreme, you know, like, so did you, like, this is so fascinating to me. So like, did you think like looking back, did you think like, as soon as I lose the 10 pounds, then I will stop? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it seems reasonable enough. It was really reasonable. I was just gonna, and I just wanted to handle, you know I mean? I was going through this, like, whatever discovery and healing and digging in the whatever and just trying to, you know, feel better. And I just, I just thought for a solution. It sounds like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's interesting. I went back to like, I just took that eating disorder and put it in another place, Mm -hmm. you know? So I started doing that and I only did very small amounts. It was very controlled. It was very measured and nobody knew. And I was really using it thinking it was a diet aid. Mm -hmm. And so, but what I could do is I could drink more. If anybody has ever been on stimulants and you are drinking, you can usually get away with a lot more. And so I just started drinking more and I had never been able to drink very much because I didn't want to lose control. And I also would get bad hangovers. So now all of a sudden I can drink kind of with impunity. So I'm drinking more all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, and I remember I would just like clean my apartment and have like a bottle of wine. It was great. Mm -hmm. And I started to actually look at, because it didn't really affect me so much because I was on the speed. I just looked at alcohol as just a beverage. I didn't, think of it as something I was drinking to get drunk or Mm -hmm. get buzzed. I really just even thought of like beers as sodas. Like I didn't even think that it was affecting me. It was really kind of a warped sense, but I had no idea. And I was someone who was smart. I was self-aware. I had been in therapy. I, you know, considered myself spiritual. And I just had like this real denial around the whole thing. What happened was I kept doing that. So it started out, I just wanted to lose 10 pounds and you know, seven, almost eight years later, I was still doing it. Mm -hmm. And still nobody knew I had, you know, come out of the nervous breakdown, had like found a new career, had like good success in a new career, had like ridiculous success. And even another, I got on a TV show. I was like, Oh my God, this, I felt like I was living the dream. Yeah. You're a superstar, right? (laughs) Basic, basic cable superstar. (laughs) And, And it was awesome. And I was still doing it. And I was in a total denial. I really did not think that it was a problem. I was drinking all day. I mean, I was pretty much drinking all day, every day. By the end, for sure. I mean, I would go to work when I was on that TV show. I would go to work and I would have, you know, a Fresca. They would get me a mug. You know, they would come to me. What do you want to drink this morning? I was like, oh, Fresca would be great or a Gatorade. And then I would take it to my dressing room and I would put vodka in it. Mm-hmm. So and no one knew like, that you no. were using meth and drinking? Like you covered it up that well? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That had to have been like, was it difficult to hide or or were you trying to hide it? Yeah. I mean, on some level I knew that, you know, smoking crystal meth is not like what good girls do. And at that point I was definitely addicted to that because I would just, I was, you know, it's even hard to say out loud, Andrea. Like I can't, I'm like, I can't believe I just said that out loud because it is so outside the realm of norm. And I almost feel like, oh, well, I've kind of like ruined this podcast for you because like, <laughs> you who, who, who of your people are smoking crystal meth? This episode or do it- is over. Right. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, I think that it's important that like, I think that we use all kinds of things and we just kind of pretend it's not what it is. Like I was like, that's not really, it's just me trying to control my weight or it's, mm. you know, the level of denial was so extreme that I did not. And when I would have moments of like, 
because I started to, I was doing it and functioning. Nobody knew. And I kept it a secret. I was keeping it a secret from other people. And I think I was really keeping it a secret from myself. And I think that that is a part Mm -hmm. that even if someone's listening to this and they're like, well, I don't have a problem. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. It's like, where are you not telling the truth to yourself? Where are you hiding it from yourself? I think that's a part of, you know, addiction that we can, when we get into recovery, we can really relate to is like, wow, I was in super denial about that. And the thing about denial, I'll just say this is I used to think denial was when you like saw something in the corner and you were like, I'm just going to pretend it's not there. I thought that was denial. I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it. But you had already, you had actually seen it and you are now choosing not to. Mm -hmm. I thought that's what denial was. I didn't know that there was this other, and sometimes it is, I didn't know there was this other level of denial of really, truly Mm -hmm. not seeing or knowing that that thing's in the corner. And that thing was my, you know, doing drugs and drinking every day. I did not really see that as like, oh, I have a problem. Oh, wait a minute. That might be part of why I feel unsatisfied. That might be part of why that relationship is ending. That might be part of why I don't feel so close to my family. That might be, you know, I just had no idea. Well, I I want to ask you one more question about your story, but first I want to, I just wanted to speak to what you said. The reason that I wanted your story, I would, you know, absolutely. You were like the first person that came to mind to have you on here because not just about alcoholism, but your story, I think, because it's the same thing with eating disorders. Like we see what we see in the media are these emaciated women typically who are skeletal and near death. Well, I think it's the same thing with crystal meth is that we see these people who have used so much that their physical person is just deteriorating. And, you know, it's like really, even like the women in Orange is the New Black, it's like the stringy hair and, you know, and it's like, and that wasn't you. I think it's important to tell stories like this of people using drugs like crystal meth where it's hideable. And I think that like the better people get at it for addicts, like the better we get at hiding it, I think that it's just such a full-time job to hide it. And it's that whole concept of when your insides don't match your outsides. Mm-hmm. And I think that for some people who really go to that low bottom where they are physically deteriorated or their life is a complete shit show, right. when they do decide to get help or when someone says like, hey, do you need help? I think that you're in trouble. It's sort of like, oh yeah, well, we kind of expected that. But for maybe for someone like you, people mm-hmm. are like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Which brings me to what happened? Like what made you decide, okay, I'm, I'm done with this? Well, I didn't think I had an issue with alcohol at all. Mm-hmm. At all. Well, that's not true. There was one moment, like there's these like glimmers, right? So I don't know if anybody listening who is like, maybe like you get these flashes. I don't know if this happened for you, but I had this flash one time I was pouring vodka into a water bottle, mm-hmm. pouring it into my Gatorade. And I was doing it in my kitchen. It was early morning before going to work. And I just had this thought of, oh, I hope this isn't a story I'm telling from the podium one day. <laughs> and I just remember it and then going like, oh, ha, 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 no. Yeah. And I knew like the podium because I had, you know, been to some AA meetings to support some family members. And so I knew kind of about it. And I remember a woman I knew who said, Oh, by the end, I was only drinking vodka. And I just remember, and I think she said that was all she had in her fridge was just like vodka in her freezer. There was something about it and I just shut it out, right? Mm-hmm. So 
I did a little research on quitting crystal meth because I knew that was something I wanted to, you know, get married, have a family. And I knew that that really, really wasn't part of that. And so I did research on it and I, like a true tweaker, I like created a binder and I had, (laughs) I truly did. I printed out all this information and it was like what to expect and how to, and really the most I remember from it was just how scared I was. I almost couldn't look at it because what I was reading was these forums of people who had quit and had been clinically depressed forever. And because Mm -hmm. I had been in that place and had had to climb out of that place and been really scared of suicide and all that was there, the idea that when I quit, I would be in a permanent state of that was just terrifying. Yeah. What happened was I'd been in a relationship for almost four years with this guy who did not know that I was, you know, going the other room and smoking crystal meth. I was like, I mean, he wasn't Nancy Drew, but I mean, I wasn't hiding at that, Mm -hmm. you know, but he broke up with me. And at that point I felt like he was like the best part of my life. Like my world had gotten really small. Like I was aware of that. So the big job had gone away. I still was working, but like everything, like I was working production and that job had ended. And I was like in between the next one. And I was just, my world had just gotten small. I didn't want to be going out and socializing. And this guy breaks up with me. I didn't know what felt like nowhere. And I remember the next morning after he had broken up with me, I woke up and I was just looking at the ceiling and I was, I just thought, you know what? There's this moment of clarity people talk about. And I was like, I got to deal with this drug thing now before I put my life back together, heal the broken heart, get back up on the horse and Mm -hmm. then go and deal with it. I thought because things are so sucky right now, now is the time to deal with it. And I went to therapy that day. And so meanwhile, I've been going to therapy for seven years or whatever. And she had no idea. Like I hid it. And so I told her and she just was like, oh, (laughs) I think it kind of like clarified some things for her. Mm -hmm. And she suggested that I was going away for Thanksgiving the next day. And when she said, when you come back, you're going to want to probably go to some of those 12 step meetings. And I was like, what me? I just, I did not want to do that. What did, what were you like insulted or like, (laughs) did you think she was going to have a different solution? It actually surprised me. And what's crazy is I had, you know, someone really close in my family I'd seen get sober and Uh I had, you know, watched him change his life. And I had, you know, show up as a different person with me. And I had been to meetings and had given him, you know, a cake for, you know, celebrate a year of sobriety. So I saw what changes could happen for somebody. And it looked great. I was glad he was doing it. But I don't know, it just was so shocking that she's I said, really? Because I guess I was identifying it. I thought that I could now use all my self determination and discipline and my willpower. Yeah. Yeah. That now I could, because I had like made my way and I had like self-will, I had like been very reliant on myself and made things happen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that I was now going to turn all of that force of will to stopping doing drugs. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I thought that was what I was going to do. And so when she said a 12 step meeting, I was just like, what? I actually, I can relate to that because I don't know if you remember, but when I first got sober and I think I was already in a 12-step program and I talked to you and I was like, I'm a life coach. Like I've done so much work and you know, I've done this and I've done that. I don't know if this is really going to help me. And you were like, well, you might want to just try it. (laughs) (laughs) And good luck with that ego head of yours when you walk through the door because you might get stuck. No, you didn't say that. (laughs) But I don't know if that's how you felt, but I kind of felt like 
ugh, like I've, I've done enough work on myself. Shouldn't I just be able to figure it out on my own? Yeah, I guess it felt like scary. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I think I identified like that's what other people did. Like that helped other people, but I was just going to be able to figure this out on my own. And I had really isolated myself. So yeah. no wonder I just wanted to do it by myself. It wasn't like I was like, great, let's go around a lot of people and share what's going on. Like, <laughs> forget it. But I did. Actually, the good news is I felt so crappy about how much I felt like I had cratered my life. I was not loving my career. I did not feel super successful. My relationship had ended. I wanted to lose 10 pounds, if you can believe that. That damn um, 10 pounds. <laughs> Hang it around. Ruining yep. life. Things were kind of in shambles. I had never gotten a DUI. No one had ever said, Court, I think you've had enough. No one had ever said that to me. I still had my apartment. I still had my nice car. Like everything on the outside still kind of looked okay. But inside, my world was small. I was miserable. And first, the thing that happened, and I kind of want to share this part, is tell the truth. Just like I told the truth to, I'm just going to say it's my dad. He told me I could, he's like, you can tell anybody. So he's been sober a really long time and is an amazing example of what sobriety can be and how relationships can get healed. And I, I love him. I respect him. And I so appreciate that he was the person that I got to say, you know, I've been doing this thing. And I told him about what I'd been doing. And I was so ashamed. And it was just like, I could not believe I had just told him that I'd been doing drugs. And he did not respond like, oh, my God, or shocking or mad. Or he just said, you know, today could be the best day of your life. And I was crying. And he was just like, you know, you've just told the truth. There's help. And he talked to me like one alcoholic talking to another. And so I got to see right in that moment, like the power of what 12 step programs talk about is people sharing experience with each other and meeting each other where they are. And so, you know, he gave me some names of people to talk to and, you know, suggested going to some meetings. And he took me to my first one that was for me, not me giving him a cake, but for me. And I went and I'd done some drugs that morning and I had drank a beer and the meeting was at 10 a.m., And went to the meeting and I just saw people whose lives looked like they were really together and they were happy and they were, there were a ton of people there. There were like, I don't know, there were a hundred people at this meeting and I did not have any hope at that point. I didn't, I hadn't realized that, but when I was there, I just saw that there was hope and that really helped. And so I pretty much just dove in and I started doing, you know, someone ran up to me at my second meeting and said, Oh, are you doing 90 and 90? And I was like, oh, I didn't even know what she was talking about. And she said, misery back guarantee, 90 meetings and 90 days. And you can have your misery back if you want it at the end. And I thought it was super cheesy. And that part. Yeah. And, um, but you know what? It caught my attention. Yeah. It was super cheesy. She was in, she was super perky. And I was just like, what? (laughs) I mean, I was still detoxing, you know? So, but here's what was crazy is like, I didn't go to rehab I didn't get any kind of like detox. I mean, it's just kind of a miracle that I was able to stop. So what happened was I picked a day that I was going to stop. I went to that meeting with my dad and I was like, okay, today's the day. It's Sunday and I'm done. And then tomorrow I'm starting, starting sobriety, whatever that looks like. And the next morning I had this little water bottle that had sake in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad I had this experience because you know how I said, no one ever said like, you should lay off or I'd never tried to Mm -hmm. quit or never tried to moderate or... But that morning was supposed to be the day I was starting sobriety, and I couldn't not drink that sake in the water bottle. Mm-hmm. And so if I ever try and tell myself now, like, well, you know, 
maybe you could moderate. Maybe you could like, for me, I'm like, you know what? I have had that experience of not being able to say no. Yeah. So I'm just going to stick with it because it's working. So I started going to meetings. I did what was suggested. I did that 90 meetings in 90 days, not because she told me and I was just going to blindly do what people told me to do. I am a huge skeptic. I am mm-hmm. suspicious mm-hmm. and I'm skeptical and I want my own evidence. So I marked down, I made sure I kept track when I was going to a meeting every day. And if I missed a day, I would double up. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to get to the end of that 90 days and see, let's see, you know, <laughs> and still be miserable. So you could prove it. <laughs> yeah, I could prove it or not. Right. Yeah. And it ended up, I wasn't, I had like made connections. I had made friends. I felt better about myself. I hadn't drank or used for, I mean, it really is a miracle that besides that first day of Monday, when I said I was going to quit and didn't the next morning, Tuesday, I haven't had a drink or a drug since then. Mm-hmm. And that just feels miraculous to me. And that feels like, I mean, it's kind of a relief to me. Like, here's the thing. I always want relief. Like I wanted relief. I wanted to get into the books for relief. I got, you know, my eating disorder gave me relief from whatever the things were that I didn't have tools to deal with. And I feel like when I got sober, I got relief from so much of that, you know, the secrets and, you know, just trying to maintain. And and the big relief is that I didn't have to do it all by myself. Yeah. Which you wanted to do which I initially thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I feel like it would have been safer and I could have managed it and I could have controlled it. And the fact is like the fact that I get to, you know, call on a spiritual connection to help me with stuff. And I was not that person. Like I was spiritual, like put it out in the universe. And, you know, I was that kind of spiritual. If someone had said God to me, I wanted to punch him in the face. Mm-hmm. If they, somebody saying, you know, let go and let God, or if it's God's will, I truly, Andrew, I think I've told you this, like I wanted to punch him mm-hmm. because I just thought I have had to make things happen in my life. It's not about God. Yeah. I don't even know what you're talking about. And it just felt like a cop out. And it was something I, I don't know. It just, I didn't like it. I went to 12 step meetings and I just did what was suggested. And I really tried to make it my own, right? I wasn't like, oh, they're saying God, so I need to be freaked out about this God that makes me mad. It's like, how can I make it work for me? Mm-hmm. And it's been pretty great. I mean, I feel like I've got this really great life and I feel like I have tools that I did not have before. So the same stuff, like life happens and I got tools in recovery that helped me deal with the stuff that I would have wanted to drink or use over. Thanks, Courtney. You're welcome. Does anyone else <laughs> want to share? <laughs> <laughs> No crosstalk. <laughs> oh, I just, I love you. And I, you know, I've heard your story a couple of times, but there's always like new things that I hear and a few things that struck me. And I think one of them that I wanted to ask you about is, do you feel like, you know, when you were saying that you had that moment where you were pouring the vodka into the water bottle and you had that just like passing thought of, I wonder if I'm going to be telling this story at a podium someday. And I had similar moments like that too, where it was like, you know, as I was pouring wine into an empty Diet Coke can to go to the park to play with my kids or pouring <laughs> pouring wine into a mug because it was two o'clock in the afternoon and I didn't want my mom to know that I was drinking that early and thinking like for me, the passing thought was, I don't think that this is what healthy drinkers and like normal responsible drinkers do. And to me, I wonder if those are kind of like invitations from the universe or from God or whatever you want to call it just to get help. What do you think? I do. 
I think that it's definitely when we have those questions, I don't think that quote unquote normies, I don't think that people that do are not having some kind of addictive stuff or problem drinking happening, ask those questions because they're not doing those things. Right. You know, I really believe that if somebody is thinking, do I have an issue with alcohol? Check it out. Check it out. Because you might. And I really, I mean, I don't know. I don't mean to scare people off, but most people who don't have an issue don't ask themselves that question. Right. You know? Or they're in severe denial still. (laughs) Yes. Which is is a lot of Yeah. Yeah. Just for people listening, you've never heard the term normie. Like Courtney was saying, like, that's who we refer to people who don't have any problem with basically with addiction, but more specifically with drinking. And like, I find them fascinating. Like I want to study them like in the corner with my clipboard. (laughs) It's like, I'm just observing like people that, because I think it's also important for people to kind of understand what it looks like. And I mean, for me, it was when I was in the midst of it all, it was, I couldn't like, if I'll just give you like one example, like if we were at a table with like three other women and, you know, sitting in, in a restaurant, And I finish my drink and maybe like the person next to me finishes hers, but the people across from me are like halfway done or three quarters of the way done. And I am keeping tabs on not only how much they have left in their drink, but how much time we have left at the restaurant. Because Mm -hmm. if they don't finish theirs, I will finish it. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to look weird, if I order another drink, because I'd really like to have two, it was like this never ending stream of consciousness about drinking and normies don't think like that. They're too busy having a conversation about whatever is being talked about at the table. And I'm kind of like halfway there. The other half of me is thinking about all those thoughts about drinking. Yeah. The math. It sucks. Yeah. And so relief from that, right? So if you are having thoughts like that, like check it, check it out. And something that is suggested in program is, you know, if you think you might have an issue with alcohol, it doesn't mean you do. No one's going to say, oh my God, you're an alcoholic and you have to do this. No, no, no. Just check it out. Try going 30 days. You know, go. That was go your assignment days. for me when I first called you and said, I thought I had a problem. Yeah. And so what happened for you? I lasted six days and mm-hmm. I white knuckled every moment of that six mm-hmm. days. And at the end of the six days, and I mean, I'm not making excuses for myself. I'm just kind of painting a picture of where I was at that time. I had two toddlers. My kids were one and three, and I had just started my business. So I was just maybe four months into launching your kick-ass life. And so I was stressed out as fuck. And Mm -hmm. we were also struggling financially. I had a brand new business. I had two babies and we were living in San Diego. And at the end of that six days, I was like, I have to have a drink. Like I deserve one. Look at my life. You know, it was like all martyrish and just like, Mm -hmm. my life is so hard. I mean, why shouldn't I have a glass of wine? I can have one glass of wine and you know, which it was never one glass of wine for me. One glass felt like torture, right? It wasn't, it wasn't fun at all. Yeah. I I wanted to, I have so many questions I want to ask you (laughs) and I want to ask you, you know, as someone, not just who experienced alcoholism and works, you know, now your job is you work in the recovery field. And I know that it's just sort of recent that you came out with your story about being addicted to crystal meth. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your article that you did for Exo Jane, which was then published by Marie Claire. So, I mean, like your story was flung out there. I know how hard that was for you. But my question is, 
Can we talk about the shame and stigma of being an alcoholic and former drug addict who is also a mother? What's your experience with that? You know, I had my kid in sobriety. Mm -hmm. So there's part of me that I know that for some people that there is a big shame component because they drank while their kids were around or they drove drunk with their kids or they checked out during bedtime stories or there's like shame associated with the drinking while they were being a mom. I feel like that isn't part of my story. So I think that that can be part of it. You know, there's people at my school who you know, might have some really strong opinions about me. Yeah. You mean at your son's school? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. My kid's school. And it's a vulnerable place to be, you know, I mean, to, it feels vulnerable. It can feel a little exposed. I really, really hope that it doesn't reflect on my child. I hope that none of that blows back on him. I don't think that it does. And I also, I want to live in a world where if we're in recovery, or even if we're having a problem, we get to raise our hand and say, yeah, this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we get to that world without people who are in recovery, raising their hand and saying, this is what recovery looks like. And I was an addict, or I was an alcoholic. So it's me kind of putting my money where my mouth is. And I think that there are people who I've created, you know, just as you have, you know, by sharing your story, it's created maybe some opportunities for people to have some conversations with me. Mm -hmm. You know, and people have reached out and said, you know, there's something in my family or I don't know. I think that there probably are some people that think I'm a jerk for whatever reason, because either because I was or maybe they have feelings about, you know, addiction because they've experienced it in their yeah, family no, or, you know, they have their own thoughts about it. And they're totally right. So I can't control anything about that. But I think that I've also created some connections with people who just feel like I'm an authentic person. And so I get to have more relationships like that yeah. with people who approach me that way. I don't know. Yes, everything you said. And my worry is that there's people out there, especially women and women listening, who maybe they're convinced that they have a problem or they're wondering if they have a problem. And what keeps them drinking is the shame and stigma of being found out. You know, it's like we know that there are places to go where it's anonymous to go to these meetings, but yeah. you know, I've talked to many women who are wanting to get sober and maybe they play an important role in their community or they are the president of the PTA or something like that, where they say, I cannot go to one of those meetings because what if I see someone there that I know what my response to that always, I'm sure you have a good response yeah. to, but my response is like, these aren't people at these meetings who are going to out you or there's no one like protesting outside saying right. like God hates alcoholics. Like, right. <laughs> like I don't want right. you to worry about that. Like you might be surprised who's there and there's going to be an awkward moment, but trust me, there's going to be, if not that person, there's going to be other people there who are going to welcome you with open arms. And if anyone's listening, who's feeling that way, just nervous about being found out. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that there's an awkwardness, but the awkwardness is for the person who's going to the meeting for the first time. Yes. And then seeing the person across the room going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing so-and-so from the PTA or from the town council or mm -hmm. from the Boy Scout den or wherever. And the person who's sitting in the meeting and who has just spotted you is just like, I just got chills in my whole body. Like I would be so happy mm -hmm. because if somebody is showing up at a meeting, it means they're saying, you know what? I need some help. Yeah. And the fact that I could be somebody that they know at that meeting and just go and be like, hi, 
you're here. Mm -hmm. Like the thing we have to remember is that person's at that meeting. They're there for a reason. (laughs) They're there too, for the same reasons you are. Yeah. And I remember freaking out because I got a phone call after I went to that first morning meeting that, you know, my dad took me to somebody called me who I knew was an alcoholic and I knew went to program. She called me and I was like, Oh my God, I think she saw me there. (laughs) That was my response. (laughs) But if she had seen me there, it would have been because she was, you know what I mean? It just, she's judging me. Yes. (laughs) But it wasn't. I think that if you see anybody that, you know, at a meeting, they are going to be psyched to see you and they are going to you know, welcome you with open arms. And it's just a place for you to just go and get some help and be honest. And it's a great place to, you know, don't let that stop you. Yeah. Those recovery meetings can vary greatly. I've heard great stories and I've heard not so great stories. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Courtney, you agree with me that if you go to one that isn't great, go to another one. I live in a podunk town and there's a lot of me, like I was surprised. I'm like, wow, there's meetings everywhere. And I think like my very first experience at a meeting was I didn't want to go, but I knew, you know, that I had to. And I wore my best outfit, of course, because uh-huh. I wanted to impress everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I wanted to kind of separate myself. You know, I just wanted to be like, I need you all to know that I really have my shit together in all other areas of my life, which was a lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, except alcohol. That's all right. I need help working on. I remember it was a beginner's meeting and there was maybe only like six people there. And there was a woman who walked in. I was early as I am chronically early and it was at, <laughs> it's so funny. So it was at the Alamo club, which I didn't know what that meant. And I thought it said Alamo club. And I was like, uh-huh. Is that like, in, like in Texas. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I go roll up to the Alamo club and there was like a homeless person walking by with his shopping cart. And I was like, Every addiction voice in me was saying, you don't belong here. Like, go to the state liquor store, get yourself a bottle of Pinot Grigio and just go home. And and I didn't. I stayed and I sat down and everybody knew each other. So I was feeling so like all this evidence that I should not be there. Like, well, everybody knows each other, you know, and I felt like it was, you know, walking to a gym where everyone's doing step class and they all, which has happened to me. And everybody like knows the whole routine. (laughs) kind of stumbling around and tripping over yourself. I have been there. So I felt like the same way. I'm like, oh God, I'm turning the wrong way. So then this woman walks in and everyone's like, hey, you know, like saying hi to her and she's hugging everybody. And then she gets to me and for a second kind of thought that she thought she knew me, but she didn't. She's just like, it's a new person. Give me a hug. And I was like, oh, awkward. Like, okay. Uh And I started crying. I started crying. Like I hadn't even said anything yet, but it, it happens a lot in these kind of meetings where I think that you just... You get to a point where, can somebody help me? Because I don't think I can help myself right now. And that's how I felt. And I stayed. And that's how I got sober. Yeah. And if you're thinking about going to a meeting, you know, you don't have to get there early, but get there on time. Yeah. Get there on time and, you know, give yourself some time to figure out where the meeting is. I mean, they're often very nondescript because there is some anonymity. There's a lot of, there's total anonymity there. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the meeting doesn't have a big blinking sign over it. So give yourself some time to, you know, find a parking spot, see where it is. You can stay in your car until a minute before the meeting starts and then go and be there. But be there in time for the meeting to start because they really run with some order. Mm -hmm. And so most times the meeting starts on time and ends on time. And at the beginning, they will say, this is a meeting. This is our format. This is what we're going to do. So you kind of have a little roadmap of what's going to be coming. 
they will often ask, is there anybody here for the first time or anybody here in their first 30 days? And as much as you don't want to raise your hand or say yes or say identify, do it anyway. Yeah. Just do it anyway. You've already gotten yourself there. You found the parking spot. You got the babysitter. Whatever you've done to <clears throat> rearrange things in your life so you can get there. And if you don't want to say, I'm Courtney, I'm an alcoholic, just be like, I'm Courtney, I'm checking it out. You can do that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. Just You're because you walked you in that room doesn't mean anything. Uh-huh. And some people might like smile and laugh a little because it's scary. And just remember that every single person in that room had a first meeting. Yeah. So Everybody they have been in know. your shoes and there is incredible empathy and support. And then stay to the end if you can. People might come up and try and talk to you. If you can't deal with it, you know, you go. But people might be asking you for your phone number or trying to make connection with you. They're not trying to, you know, track you down. You know, you don't get in trouble if you don't come back. It's just people wanting to it's connect works, and offer yeah. support. Yeah. And just to kind of circle back to what we were talking about before we started talking about that around the stigma, I think Mm -hmm. of being a mother. And I think like for me, it's tricky because I have that t-shirt. I wore it to that facing addiction thing that we went to in DC. It's a black shirt and it says sober across the front of it in like Mm -hmm. big letters. And it was funny when I bought it, I was like, yeah, you know, like I'm going to wear it. I'm going to be like loud and proud. But then when it arrived at my house and I hung it up in my closet and I was like, where am I going to wear this to accept for a recovery meeting or event? Right. Because to be completely honest, mm-hmm. I don't think I want to roll up to a PTA meeting wearing this, mm-hmm. you know, like living in the South, especially, I think maybe if I was still in Southern California, I might feel a little bit differently. I, I might not actually, probably not, but it just, there's still a part of me that doesn't want people to know because, right. and I think it's part of our culture of like, you know, good moms aren't alcoholics. And I think that it's a barrier for some, but I can tell you this with the utmost honesty is that like you were saying, like once we start telling the truth, Mm -hmm. whether it's to a group of other alcoholics at a recovery meeting or like one friend that we trust, or even, you know, your therapist, or even, you know, start with yourself Mm -hmm. and the shame can start to dissipate. And as long as you're sharing it with the right person. And that's what I talk about a lot over here on the podcast, but I can guarantee you that you keeping it in and you feeling like an immense amount of shame around it is going to manifest more drinking. Yeah. Cause you're drinking for relief, right? Right. And cause we deserve it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I deserve it. I mean, one of the reasons I didn't think I needed to go to meetings is because I was going to quit doing crystal meth and Lord knows who doesn't deserve a glass of wine. If they're, you know, quitting, quitting crystal, crystal meth, meth is hard. Right. So I was going to deserve a glass of wine. So are you kidding me? I have to stop drinking. And here's the thing. I really was like, well, I don't need to go to those meetings. I'm not an alcoholic. I just want to stop doing this diet thing I've been doing. And the fact was, as I thought, wait a minute. And the person who called me that day and said, oh, hey, but wasn't at the meeting when I told her what I was doing. And I said, I don't really know if I have an issue with alcohol. That's what she said to me. How about you try it for 30 days? What happened was I noticed I have a real issue with the idea of not drinking. Mm-hmm. So if I'm having that strong a reaction to the idea of it, maybe there's something there. So maybe this is something to check out. If that idea really freaks you out, there might be something there. Yeah. I remember when I first got sober, I think it might've been like when I relapsed, what was that like four months in? And I, you called it doing research and you were like, well, you just needed to do that research. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I love that you call it that because I think it's all 
helpful. I mean, you know, I hear people getting really down on themselves for relapsing and I think it's all important. Not that I want someone to suffer and struggle like that, but you're building your path really. And I mean, I needed that fall down on my face moment. And it taught me so many lessons about myself and really about the recovery path that I was on, which wasn't really working for me. And it allowed me to kind of like re-navigate and Mm -hmm. figure out a direction that worked better, kind of tweaking and no pun intended with using the word tweaking. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even go there. I didn't even go there. But to kind of, for lack of a better word, to fix it. I have one more question for you before we wrap up, because I'm super curious about what your answer would be to what do you see as the barrier with people staying sober? Because like we always hear, you know, getting sober is kind of the easy part. Staying sober is tricky. What do you think? What's the barrier to staying sober? Yeah. I think that sticking close to whatever you identify and what works as a recovery program for you. There's a saying, people who stop going to meetings, stop hearing what happens to people who stop going to meetings. Mm, So mm -hmm. when I'm at a meeting, I hear people coming back saying, you know what? I thought I had this. I had two years, you know, six months, 20 years. And I just thought I had it and I didn't stay close. And by staying close, I don't mean you have to go to a meeting every day. Like, you know, there's one solid meeting that I absolutely go to if I'm in town every Saturday morning and I don't miss it. It's awesome. So to me, keeping connected in that way is really important. And I've identified that like my recovery program is my medicine. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if I were diabetic or if people who have cancer, then they have to take then uh, tamoxifen or whatever the things are they take that are helping their body stay healthy. I think you need to be vigilant about your recovery program and don't think that, oh, you've got it. I mean, this is totally for me because I think that there are some people who get sober, do whatever. And then they just go on, they're on their way and they never have an issue with it. For me, I know that I need to be reminded of the tools. I need to be reminded I'm not alone. I'd like to hear the stories. I love hearing the stories. I love hearing people just like rock it out in recovery. I feel like there's a tribe and I love being part of it. All my friends are not sober. I have friends who are sober, but that's not my whole world. I don't kind of like run my whole life around it. It's not like an all or nothing but to find what is supportive to you. And I think this is the other part. Tell the truth. If you feel like that glass of wine that whoever at the table is having is looking really good to you, or you're kind of thinking about walking down the aisle where all the wine is, notice that. Because I do think that this is an addiction, a disease that lives on. We still have it. So it wants us, its solution to things is for us to be drinking or using or whatever the thing is that checks us out. So I guess it's kind of a bunch of different things, but keep using the tools, you know, Mm. notice when you're feeling like squirrely or mad or agitated and figure out some tools to get out of that, like work those tools. Because if we don't, we're going to get to a place. I feel like if I don't use those tools, I am going to get to a point where The best solution, the fastest solution for me to get some relief is going to be a glass of wine. To me to drink. Yeah. Just one. And I'm going to have a voice that at that point I will have kind of taken myself far enough away from the tribe that just one would be all right. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want to mess around with it. You know what I mean? I might be somebody who could go back and just have one, but I don't think I would. I think I would be doing the math that you talked about. Yeah. I would be like, well, I'm just having one, but it's Fridays. Okay. Well, if I had one, it's Friday. No, it's Saturday. Well, I'm just having one. 
I don't have room for that. Like that's, that's exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah. I was on Terry Cole's podcast and and it was the first time she had ever told the story publicly. I was honored that I brought it out in her and she's been sober for a long time, but I think it was, she said about eight years prior, she had already been sober for like a decade. I'd have to go back and listen to it, but it was something about, she had kind of heard that voice of like, well, I could probably just have one. She was telling the story. I got goosebumps because I was like, it was like a train wreck I could see coming. She's telling the story and she was like, then I decided to do an experiment. Mm -hmm. She was looking at the whole thing as an experiment. Like she had the tools and the expertise and the credentials to know, like she was kind of like watching the whole thing from the outside to know that what she was doing was in service to, oh God, it was just, I'm listening to it and I'm just shaking my head thinking like, that could be me. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, I could see myself being all like smarty pants about it, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Like watch me do this experiment where I start drinking screwdrivers and And it got bad for her and she had to pull herself back out. But I want to say she didn't tell anyone. I think that like that was part of her, you know, obviously like the criteria she created. Right. I like that you said that. It's about telling the truth because I know for me is telling my husband and I've told him on a few occasions because my husband's a normie. He actually chooses not to drink. Mm -hmm. And I've told him point blank, if I ever come to you and say, I think I'm going to moderate. Like, I think that I'm okay now Mm -hmm. because he would believe me. Like I could convince him sure, because he doesn't understand addiction. And so he'd be like, okay, you know, (laughs) and I told him, like, if I ever tell you that, even if I'm very convincing, don't believe me. And, you know, I I should probably tell him, like, call Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we got to tell the truth. And here's the thing to consider. You know, if somebody said, you know, you are so allergic to strawberries, if you have strawberries, you could potentially lose your kids. You will be obsessed with strawberries. You will hide strawberries. You know what I mean? (laughs) You would be like, I don't need strawberries. You know what I mean? Like, my life's fine. But then you find yourself like, hmm. So we do that with alcohol, right? And we're like, well, I think I'd be fine. I guess the point is, if I start to think, well, maybe just a glass would be fine. Like, ding, ding, ding. Mm -hmm. That's an issue. And this is the other part. If I think my life is going to get better with a glass of wine, I want to start tuning up my life. Because I don't want to be relying on that. Like, I have so much freedom not having to look to a glass of wine or a bottle or whatever to have fun, have relief, feel better. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just, there's freedom. There's freedom from it. Yeah. For me, it would be, remember that time we had so many strawberries and it was so fun. (laughs) Let's do that again. (laughs) Strawberries are natural. (laughs) Uh, There's this end cap at the grocery store that I go to that has like refrigerated. It's like all the white wines. And it's at the end of the freezer section. So it's always like my last stop. You know, we all have like our pattern that we follow at the grocery store. And then, you know, I turn the corner and then go to check out. And maybe like a month ago or so, I didn't even notice it was there. And I happened to look over and notice it. And my eyes fell on my absolute favorite in the whole world brand of wine. Mm -hmm. And I know now exactly where it is in the cooler. It's like the top right corner, second shelf on the bottom. Uh And so I found myself like kind of like looking over at it. It's kind of, you know, it's almost like a person that we have like a crush on who's like super hot. And you're like, oh, is it going to be there? You know, it's like, there is. You know, it's like, that's how it is. And like to someone who doesn't have a problem with alcohol, they might hear that story and be like, you do what? What? (laughs) Right. 
weird. I told my husband some things like that and he looks at me like, that is so weird. Like I would never do that. So like to me, like those are huge indicators that I still need to work on my recovery, that I'm not okay, that I don't have it down. If I'm still like oogling at the wine. Yeah. Yeah. That probably having a glass of it wouldn't be the solution. No. Right. And not beating yourself. You know, I love that you're not like, oh my God, I think there's a problem. What am I doing? I really noticed. It was like, no, I mean, I think we can be, have some lightheartedness around. I was like, oh my God. And I think that that's what happens sometimes at meetings is you hear people talk about like the crazy idea or the crazy thing that looked so appealing. And then we share it and we get it out and it's not a secret. And all of a sudden it doesn't really have the hold over us. It loses you know? power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all of this. It's been just balm for my heart and soul. And I know that there's so many people listening that needed to hear this or even just one little nugget that was given. And thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing your story and sharing all your wisdom too. Thanks. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's an honor. I love what you're doing and I appreciate being part of this conversation. Can I say one last thing about it? Absolutely. I just feel like the shame and stigma part, you know how we've like created this whole world of, which is fabulous about really wanting to address breast cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden in the NFL, it's pink and AYSO, they've got pink socks and there's like pink, 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 and there's breakfast and everybody's all about. And so it's awesome, right? Because we're trying to find a cure and people who have survived breast cancer, they're called survivors, Right. right. And if you find out that somebody, oh, well, my mom, my mom's a survivor. My aunt, people talk about it. People don't go and like hide in the closet or feel ashamed that someone in their family has breast cancer. Like they want to get them help. They want to share a solution. This is what worked. This is a great doctor. That's what I want the world to be around addiction and recovery, that the people who are in recovery are survivors. We get to be proud. We've been through hell and back and we are living a different life and to not have to be in the shadows about it so that we can show and shine the light about what recovery can look like so that the people that are struggling with it aren't bad people. They've got a disease and they've got something that's going on that they need some help with. I so appreciate that you're part of this conversation and part of leading, you know, like waving the banner of what recovery can look like. So I just want to really say thank you, Andrea, for that. And thanks for including me in it. You're welcome. I mean, it's interesting. And I, you know, of course, I, I agree with everything that you say. I'm definitely on that same wavelength of wanting that for recovery and people that are in long-term recovery. And I know, though, that there was a time, like in the very, very beginning, where I felt that shame and stigma, where I was like, am I going to have to talk about this publicly? Right. You know, but it's like, if it was breast cancer, it would have been a different story. I mean, not that I would have been like super excited that I had cancer, but it's a very different feeling. I think not that I have experienced the other, but I just remember that feeling of panic. And I know you were there with me where I was like, I think I need to tell my story. And, you know, this is when I was coming up on a year of sobriety and I was like, but I am terrified to do it. You know, and it was, I just, I wasn't ready yet. I was still right. working through some stuff. Right. And, yeah. And, and to that point, if anybody's listening to this and going like, what? I'm supposed to get sober and I'm supposed to tell everybody about it. I'm not saying that at no, all. No, no, I'm saying I look forward to a world where that is what's going on and that it's going on for people who are happy to share it. And if you get sober and don't want to tell anybody, don't. There's no rule you have to at all, at all. I just want there to be people out ahead who we can look to and go, oh, that is possible. Mm-hmm. It's possible. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you pointed that out and pulled that out because it's like, I definitely don't want anyone listening to think that the way to be a happy, shiny, recovered person is to come out publicly with your story. That's not it at all. And if you focus on that, I think that that might drive people to drink like because that's scary. (laughs) Yeah. And if you think I'm going to have to go tell everybody. And I think that it's actually in recovery, there's a lot of they say, which was part of what I wanted to test, like the 90 day test and different tests. But they say that, you know, in early recovery, like in the first two years, your project is getting sober, staying sober. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be carrying a banner, marching in, you know, parades, you just do you Mm -hmm. take care of you and put your life back together in a way that feels good and strong. And then you can make any kind of decision after that. Yeah, I mean, because most people that do decide to get sober have been in an addiction for a long time. So it's going to take a minute to Mm -hmm. get to a place where you feel like you're on solid enough ground, if you choose to do so, to become an advocate and tell your story to more and more people. So, Yeah, or even just tell your neighbors or even just when you're at the PTA meeting and everybody's, you know, drinking wine. I don't always say, oh, no, I don't because I just say, I usually just say no. Mm -hmm. So even though I feel like I am an advocate and I have put my story out there, when I'm with a bunch of moms and they're, you know, pouring drinks or we're going around the table ordering, I just order what I order. I don't say, oh, I'm an alcoholic or I don't drink. I just do my thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like sometimes it comes up, sometimes it doesn't. So there's that part too. Yeah. Will you come on again? Sure. (laughs) Totally. Am I going to be, am I going to be part three too? (laughs) Part (laughs) deux. Okay. Well, before we go, tell everyone where they can find you because you do work in recovery and especially like if they're in the LA area, are you taking one-on-one clients? Yeah. Yeah. The clients I work with primarily are, have already made the decision that they want to be getting sober. And so they're in recovery, but if somebody were like, thinking about it, but like not quite sure. Shoot me a note. You can go to my website, which is yourrecoveredlife.com. Yourrecoveredlife.com. And that will be in the show notes at yourkickasslife.com. And we will also put a link to the article that we had mentioned before about your story that was on Exojane. And again, thank you so much for being here. And everybody listening, again, yourrecoveredlife.com. And I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.